Matthew chapter 16 from verse 13. We remember this is God's Word. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hand of the elders and chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Amen. We trust that God will bless to us this reading from His Word. Well, it might be helpful to you and uh, to me to have a, a Bible open at, uh, look at Matthew chapter 16 from verse 13, page 983. Um, Don Carson, as a name you'll, you'll maybe know, very prolific Christian writer and speaker. Uh, Don Carson starts one of his books by imagining a man going into a shop and asking to buy some of the gospel. Uh, this is what he says. I would like to buy about $3 worth of gospel, please. Not too much, just enough to make me happy, but not so much that I get addicted. I don't want so much gospel that I learn to really hate covetousness, covetousness and lust. I certainly don't want so much that I start to love my enemies or cherish self-denial or contemplate missionary service in some alien culture. I want ecstasy, not repentance. I want transcendence, not transformation. I would like to be cherished by some nice, forgiving, broad-minded people, but I don't myself want to love those from different races. I would like enough gospel to make my family secure and my children well-behaved, but not so much that I find my ambitions redirected or my giving greatly enlarged. I would like three dollars worth of gospel, please. I wonder what we would ask for if we were ordering the gospel at the beginning of this year, or if we were asking for, for Jesus. Do we, do we come to Him and say, I want as much of you as possible, or, or I just want enough of you to make me happy? It's not an uncommon thing for, for people to view Jesus who, as someone who in large doses is dangerous or uncomfortable. I remember very well as a, a young person, as a teenager, I wasn't a, a living as a, a Christian at that time, and, and I, I was party to a conversation between two men, and they were talking about a third man who'd become a Christian. 
And uh, they said, you know, one of them said, did you hear about so-and-so? He's become a Christian. He seems to be really committed to the whole thing and so on. And they talked about it for a while. And then this man concluded, he says, you know, you can take it all too seriously. Uh, and I remember even as, as a, a young person who, who wasn't particularly living for Jesus at the time thinking, I'm sure that's not right. But there was a man, you see, who would, who would ask for $3 worth of gospel, just a little, just enough to get my ticket. Now, if we're going to be people who ask for more than that this year, who, who come to Jesus and say, I want all of you that there is, then it will be because we, we understand something of Him, who He is, and we understand something of what He is doing, what His work is within the world. And this passage that's in front of us in Matthew chapter 16 tells us something about that. It's a really important point in, in Matthew's gospel, this point where Peter confesses who Jesus is. As you, you saw in that next verse from the next section that we read in verse 21, it, it brings a change in what Jesus does with the disciples. From that time on, verse 21, Jesus began to explain to His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. So, so G, Peter, especially of the disciples, sees who Jesus is, and then Jesus, that being clear, begins to make clear to them what he must do, that he is the one who's going to suffer. Well, let's look at the, the, the first passage, 13 to 20, for a moment or two, and see what it is Jesus is saying. Here, here's what we're going to see today. I think we've got it on the screen, just a little summary of the passage. Uh, Jesus is the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah, who is building His church. That's really what He's saying here. That's what this part of the Bible is telling us. Let, let's think about that first bit. Jesus is the, the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah. So, Jesus and His disciples are in the, the, the area of Caesarea Philippi, about 25 miles to the north of the Sea of Galilee. And, and this was an interesting area. It was a, a sort of a, a pagan area, in a sense. It was an area that had a long history of Baal worship. And then the Greeks had come in, and they'd dedicated a temple there to the Greek god Pan. And, and Herod the Great came along, and he built a temple in the town there to Caesar Augustus, really, to the, the, the emperor at the time, by whose right, he, by whose will he was able to rule. Philip came along later and adorned it. And, and so, the, the, the town was called Caesarea Philippi, Caesar Philip, to distinguish it from another Caesarea that was up the coast. But it was an area that sort of said to people, who is most important? Who deserves our worship? Is it Baal? Is it Pan? Do we worship Caesar? Do we worship the state? Is Philip the most important person that we should think about? Who really has ultimate authority within our world? And Jesus comes in that area, and He says to the disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? He's asking, what's the word on the street? Well, the disciples are, are really happy to demonstrate that they have their finger on the pulse of popular opinion, and they say, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So, here were a number of widespread beliefs that there were around in the popular 
uh, talk of the day. And you see that, that some of them involve, I suppose, what we might call reincarnation. There seemed to be a bit of an idea around at that time that someone from the past could come and somehow be reincarnated in another person. So, remember whenever uh, Herod put to death John the Baptist and then he heard about the ministry of Jesus, he was afraid that John the Baptist had somehow come back in the person of Jesus. That was a common idea at the time. And so some people say, well, he, you're John the Baptist. Herod obviously was one of those. Uh, some people said uh, Jeremiah. Some people said Elijah, one of the great prophets. Some people said Jeremiah. There was an idea that Jeremiah would return at some point as well. One of the prophets, well, that might mean a reincarnated prophet, or, or, or a new prophet. There had been no prophet for 400 years, and, and here were people who were saying, you know, Jesus is so remarkable. It's almost as if God is starting to do something new again. He's a new prophet. All of these are, are very high views of Jesus. They're really acknowledging that Jesus is, is highly thought of, and yet they all fall short of who He really is. Well, Jesus follows with a second question, but what about you? Verse 15, who do you say I am? This is where Jesus was working towards, of course, because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what other people think about Jesus. It matters what we think about Him. It doesn't matter what popular culture says about Jesus. It matters who He is and whether we have grasped that. It's interesting to note that there were all these other views, very respectful views, of course, but they were all wrong, popular but wrong. If we were to commission a survey today about what people thought of Jesus, we would get all sorts of opinions. Some of them would be respectful. Some of them would be very, very critical. But in a sense, it doesn't matter, does it? The question is, who is He really? And have we seen it? That, that's partly why we're doing Christianity Explored. It's just so helpful to look at that question together. Have we understood who Jesus is, and are we able to grasp it for ourselves and the implications of that for ourselves? Well, Peter certainly has, because you see verse 16, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, the word Christ is the same as the word Messiah. It's the same word, just different languages, and it means anointed one. It occurs in the Old Testament hundreds of times. It's mainly referring to prophets and priests and kings because they were anointed. It means anointed one, and it refers to someone who, who set apart to do a work for God. But all the way through the Old Testament, there was a recognition that while these people were set apart to do particular works for God, there would one day come one person who would be the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, who would be specially set apart by God, who would come to save and rescue His people. And so, Peter is coming and saying, you're the one. You're the long-awaited Messiah sent from God. But more than that, he says, you're the Son of the living God, not just a prophet or a priest or a king. He is God's Son, absolutely, absolutely unique. It's an amazing statement from Peter. But as Jesus points out, it's not that he'd sort of grasped this all by himself. It was something that God had revealed to him. This was not revealed to you by man, but my, by my Father in heaven. 
God himself had helped him see it. You see, this can't be fully figured out by ourselves. It can't be got to without divine help. Our minds are naturally too closed, but God has revealed it to Peter. So, if you're here today at the start of 2018 and you're a Christian, this is one of the things that that makes you different from the world. You see who Jesus is. Because after all, why would somebody follow a, a dead leader or, or even a good teacher, or someone whose life had moral quality. At best, we would learn some lessons from someone like that, and then learn some lessons from someone else, and we draw it all together. But a Christian is someone who understands who Jesus is. Christians see that the Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago really was the Son of God, come into this world to rescue And if you're a Christian, it means that God has helped you see that. We should be so thankful that God has opened our eyes. God has helped us see that. Jesus, who is He? He's the long-awaited Son of God, the Messiah. What's He doing? Well, He is building His church. You see what Jesus says next. And I tell you, verse 18, that you are Peter... And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, you might know, if you know some things about church history, you might know that this verse has caused perhaps more controversy in the last number of hundred years than than probably any other. And the, the reason is it's the main justification that our Roman Catholic friends use to argue for the papacy, that the idea that there should be a particular head of the church who is the Pope, who traces his position all the way back to Peter, who they say is the first Pope. And according to their view, this view, that's what Jesus is speaking about here, that Peter and his successors are the rock on which the church is built. Now, we need to say, because that's such a big thing in our world, we need to say a few things about that. First of all, there's not really been an awful lot of clarity about what Jesus means whenever He speaks about the rock here. What's He referring to? You see, down through history, people have thought that people that Jesus was referring to Peter. You see, there's a little play on words. Peter means rock, as some of you know, and therefore Jesus was saying, you're Peter, you're Peter the rock, and on you as Peter the rock, I'm going to build my church. Some people have thought it was that. Some people have thought that it was the, the faith that Peter confesses, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Or, or the apostles together, or Jesus Himself. In other words, you're Peter the rock, but on this rock, on, on, on me, Jesus, I'm going to build my church. Peter, in his first letter, actually refers to Jesus as the the living stone and the cornerstone of the church. Maybe it was that. Secondly, this verse doesn't refer to Peter's successors at all. There's no hint here or anywhere else in the New Testament that Jesus intends there to be one ongoing head of the church, overall leader of the church. That's never talked about. And the third thing, and perhaps really clearly, Peter himself doesn't take on this role. 
He, he plays a very significant role at Pentecost when the New Testament church is launched through his preaching. Maybe that's what Jesus was referring to. But then later on, James takes over the leadership of the church in Jerusalem, and Peter sort of fades from the background. It's James who chairs the Jerusalem council in Acts 15. Now, Peter's given the keys of the kingdom. You see that here um, in uh, verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. What's the keys of the kingdom? Well, people have thought that, that that's really a reference to entry. You, you have keys to, to let people in or to keep people out. And there's a very particular way, as we read through Acts, in which Peter lets people in, as it were, through his preaching and through his ministry. He does it on Pentecost, whenever uh, he preaches, and, and people, mainly Jews, come flooding into the kingdom of God. He, he does it with the Samaritans, also in Acts, as he is the one who is instrumental in bringing them into the kingdom. And he does it with the Gentiles through Cornelius, as he brings the Gentiles into the kingdom. He's the keeper of the keys, you see, in that way. And then, as he's done that, he fades from view. Acts goes on to concentrate on Paul. So, so in all of those reasons, for all of those reasons, trying to use that verse to, to support the, the idea of the office of a pope just doesn't seem to be appropriate at all. Now, having said all that, it's, it's a little bit of a shame that that verse has been so controversial because in many ways it distracts us from the main point of what Jesus is saying. Here he says, I will build my church. It's just amazing. This is what Jesus is doing. This is what he came to earth in order to do for the church so that he would build a people. He clearly foresaw that after his death, there would be those who would gather in his name so he knows exactly what's going on and what's going to happen. Now, this shows us that the church is not an optional extra in Jesus' mind. It's not that Jesus came along as the Messiah in order to rescue people, to transform their lives as individuals, and then thought, well, if they happen to gather together, that will be a nice extra. But it's not really essential. Not at all. He came, first of all, to build a church, to gather a people. The, the, the word church literally means gathering. It's used of crowds of people, whether they're religious or not. And this is what Jesus does. He gathers people together on earth. He will gather them together into heaven. He's building a church. I sometimes meet people, I'm sure you do too, who, who say, well, yeah, I'm a Christian, and I, I read my Bible, and I pray, but I don't really bother with the church. That would have mystified the New Testament, as it were. No category for that sort of person particularly. We've often used that illustration of John Chapman's, the Australian, who says that, that being a Christian is really a team sport. You know, golf isn't really a team sport. You can go out and play golf very successfully by yourself. You can, you can play it against yourself, against the, 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 the course, as it were. But you, you can't uh, play hockey in the same way. You need a team to play hockey. So if you say you're a hockey player, but you don't play with a team, well, you're not really a proper hockey player. In the same way, Christians, if they can be involved in a church, but they, they, choose, they choose not to, it puts them firmly outside what Jesus has in mind when he talks about what he came to do. Not only should it 
help us think about being involved in the church. It should also change how we think about the church itself, because we live in this tremendously individualistic culture, and, and we tend to think in terms at its basis of Jesus and me, this personal relationship. But we need to think in terms of Jesus and us. God meets us together. Of course, He meets us as individuals, but He came to build His church, Jesus and us. He calls it His church, how precious it is to Him. We belong to Him. He looks at His church today, and He says, it's mine. How amazing. Now, here's what's going on across the world. Here's what the, the headlines should really be about. We read the headlines. They're about Donald Trump being a genius. They're about Brexit. They're about Storm Eleanor. But in heaven, the headlines are about the church. What do you imagine is being reported about the church in Lurgan, in heaven. How is the building of the church in Lurgan progressing? And so, if we think like that, to have a heavenly mindset, we need to, to fill our minds with that question, how is the building of the church going? Give thanks for what's encouraging. Pray for the blessing of God. Because one day, we will see what God has been doing for all of these years, 2,000 years before Jesus, 2,000 years after Him, and the church doesn't look like much now, but one day, God will reveal what He's been doing, and it will be splendid. I remember this coming home to me when I was a, a student in Aberdeen. I think it was Sinclair Ferguson who came and, and spoke at a CU meeting, and he talked about the church. And he talked about the fact that he, he regularly walked through an area of Glasgow where there was a very large old church. And, and over the years, it had been uh, stained with soot and, and through the Industrial Revolution in Glasgow and so on, and it had turned black. And, and eventually, the, the scaffolding went up around it and the screens went up around it, and people sort of forgot it was there. They walked past it, never really noticed. But all the time, behind the screens, behind the scenes, the work was going on. This church was being repointed, rebuilt, cleaned up. And then one day, the screens came down, the scaffolding came down, and people were amazed. It was beautiful. It was stunning. The screens had come down, and people saw what had really been going on, what was in front of them all the time, and yet they'd never noticed. And one day, the screens will come down on the church, and we will see what Jesus is doing, and we'll be amazed. He's building His church. He's also protecting His church. You see that? You notice He says, the gates of Hades or the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Uh, that, that's really a reference to the strength, the gates in, in a city were particularly the, the, the strength, the, the strong point if they were surrounded by fortifications and so on. It tells us that the church will be opposed, but it will also be preserved. There will always be a church on earth until Jesus returns. It might disappear from a particular place, but it will always be somewhere, and there will always be a witness. We can be confident of that. Many people have predicted the demise of the church. You know that Philip Pullman has got some new books out just recently. Great atheist, very strong atheist. He declared on Radio 4, without a doubt, Christianity will cease to exist in a few years. 
But lots of people have made that prediction. One of the toughest times in all of church history for the church was at the beginning of the fourth century, 300 AD. The emperor at the time was Diocletian. He ordered a great clearing of Christians. Christians were to lose all their possessions. They were to be put to death on occasion. They were to have all their property handed over to the state and so on. It was a terrible time for the church. Great bloodbath for about 10 years. He had a medal inscribed with these words, the Christian religion is destroyed and the worship of the gods is restored, the Roman gods. But after just a few years, Constantine became the emperor, was converted, it seems, and Christianity became the preferred faith of the empire. See, Jesus will protect his church because he's promised to, because it's precious to him. When Jesus spoke these words, he was heading eventually to Jerusalem, and there he would lay down his life for the church, for us. So here's what we see. Who is this Jesus? If we're going to commit ourselves to him this year, who is this Jesus? Well, he is the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah, and what's he doing? He is building his church. There is the headline of 2018, the main thing that is going on in the world, Jesus building his church. What should we do? What should we do if that's what Jesus is doing? Well, what we should do, I want to suggest, is we should fall into step with what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing. Align your priorities with his priorities. I'm sure most of us have used the turning of the year to take stock of our lives, to maybe to make resolutions, or at least to acknowledge in our heads that there are things that we hope for and we wish for and we dream for in 2018. Can I encourage you to revisit those and to align your priorities with His priorities? Give yourself to the work of building the church in the world with your time, with your money, with your heart, so that, so that the work that Jesus is doing across the world has first call on your heart. Because mark this, in 10,000 years, that is what you will be able to look back on and be grateful for. Some of you who are younger, you're thinking about where you're going to work within the world. Where am I going to get a job? Start looking at the, the job opportunities that there are in somewhere like Leeds, where there's 0.4% who attend an evangelical church. Take a job in the south of Ireland the least evangelized English-speaking country in the world, so that you can be part of building the church there in, in, in one of the great mission fields of our world, half an hour's drive away. Maybe God is calling you to ministry or missionary work overseas. In 10,000 years, you'll not be sorry for making sacrifices for the church 
because it is what Jesus is doing. Get in step with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is building His church. Let's pray together. Lord, how, how grateful we are today to be found in the midst of the church. You're the one who reveals these things to us. We, we could be in a place where the name of Jesus is not known or heard, and yet here we are today. Lord, help us, first of all, to recognize who you are, that we might trust you, that we might belong to you. But help us, Lord, too, to fall into step with what you're doing, to, to think through for ourselves what that might mean for us here in terms of Hill Street, in, in terms of our commitment to your church across the world, in terms of what we do with our lives. For in 10,000 years, Lord, these are the things that will cause us to rejoice. We pray in Jesus' name.